0: Hello Movie Truthers, welcome to this week's episode of Truth In Movies, I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Straub. And I'm Mark Ash. On the show this week, James Gray returns to his childhood in Armageddon time, Charlotte Wells revisits a holiday with her father in Aftersun, and I caught up with the Aftersun stars Paul Maskell and Frankie Corio. Finally for Film Club, it's James Gray's debut, crime drama Little Odessa, all coming up on Truth In Movies A Little White Lies Podcast. So first, introductions are in order. Mark Ash, we're very excited to have you on the podcast this week. For those who aren't familiar with your work, who are you?
1: I'm... Mark Ash, I'm a soldier for cinema, the author of Close Ups, New York movies, and a contributor to Little White Lies, Animus, Reverse Shot, Screen Slate, Filmmaker, Film Comment, Inside Hook, The Playlist, and wherever good criticism is found. And I'm so happy to be making my debut on this podcast and happy to be inside of all of your ears.
0: Well it's very nice to have you on for like a quality week as well and we've got some kind of similarities in the films that we're going to look at which some people are defining as the kind of new era of the Roma where we've got all these filmmakers that are going back into their past telling coming of age stories and sort of the way that in childhood they the budding artist emerged I suppose. What do you guys make of this new trend?
2: Um, I mean, I think that Belfast was a real uh, nadir for the genre, even though it was one of the kind of firsts that we saw. I can't remember if I did the podcast on that film, but I still harbour so much resentment. And watching The Fablemans last week, I was just haunted by the opening shot of that film where it goes like over Belfast, mountain day, and then it turns black and white as like Kenneth is remembering the past. I was just like, oh God. Thankfully, The Fablemans, I think is a much better film. But I guess it's that thing of all these, not so much after Sun, which I think Charlotte has kind of been quite adamant that that it's not necessarily about a real holiday. It's about kind of more the process of memory and how that works. But people like Spielberg, James Gray, Sam Mendes, they're all kind of reaching an age where maybe they're reflecting more and feeling like they've reached that point where they want to make a film that speaks more about their childhood and has that kind of specificity. I think when we're interested in the person, it works. I mean, I I sound like I'm really sticking the knife in with Kenneth Branagh, but I, I, I did not find that film particularly interesting. And I don't know how much Empire of Light is really based on Sam Mendes as uh, childhood but that doesn't necessarily interest me as a topic so much but I guess I am kind of a sucker for a film about filmmaking, a film about the love of cinema so definitely like with the Fablemans, with Armageddon Time which isn't actually really about cinema so much as just artistic impulse generally these directors are really like they're hitting uh, a very specific button that exists in my brain so I will keep watching them you know (laughs) I keep saying why are they all coming out and then I go and see them anyway. It really is like to TV.
1: It's interesting as we're going to be looking at two films from to date the opposite ends of James Gray's career that are autobiographically informed in very different ways, that there is a sort of write what you know impulse, especially at the beginning of your career, when you might not necessarily have the budgets or the sense of historical distance to do a period film that sort of reflects on a past moment in your life. And I think it's interesting that you're yeah, Belfast is an interesting counterexample mm-hmm. to Fablemans and Armageddon Time and even even Empire of Light in that I think that Belfast is maybe a film that takes on like a period in time and a place and a subject that's been the subject of a lot of great or and interesting art over the years and where it ends, adds very little to that context. Whereas the other films that we're talking about, even Empire of Light, which is is bad Is very bad it's still like is it like a very like loving expensive looking kind of fake but that's okay because it's a movie recreation of the margate seafront circa 1980 and a very idealized portrait of like that era of movie going and there's some novelty to that just as there's novelty to seeing like the phoenix valley suburbs in around the late 50s the early 60s in the fablemans or flushing queens in in 1980 that sort of there's at least like a novelty factor there for me. Movies can be about anything. So it's nice when filmmakers who come from a time and a place that isn't necessarily, that, that can be potentially new to cinema. It's something to, it's something to look at. I mean, that's yeah. all I want. Just like to forget my troubles for two hours in the beam of the projector, which is easier to do if there's a certain novelty to what I'm looking at.
0: Yeah, it, it does feel like the sort of film that we consider awards bait does change a lot of, over time. Like, in the last decade, there seemed to be a lot of idea that everything had to be films about filmmaking, and this is almost kind of taking it one step earlier, you know, more about kind of the seed of that passion. But do you think that the reason that these awards bodies respond so well to this is just because they see themselves in it?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> that's why Triangle of Sadness won the Palm d'Or at can. because... <laughs> Because it's about rich people on a boat, and the can Jerry could relate to that. So
2: <laughs> they have that reaction of the meme that's like, I do that when they watch <laughs> fil- films.
1: It's, like ju- that. it's just like me, for real, for real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> So certainly my own response to something like Armageddon Time is very coloured by having, as we'll get into, certain autobiographical resonances that it has for me. So it wouldn't surprise me if that is exactly what critics and awards bodies are responding to. But just as the Can jury responded really well to a film about getting comped clothes and vacations. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense.
2: I just want to add that it's interesting that we're doing today a film by a very established director and a new director because I think that there is a sort of goodwill thing sometimes with these filmmakers you know when the fablemans was announced i think a lot of people were just really excited because they love steven spielberg so much and there was this idea of it going back to that kind of sense of like wonder that spielberg has always been so good at kind of conjuring up and i think he's made the most spielberg film he could have he could have made but we're not talking about spielberg today we're talking about james gray but i do think that that is definitely part of it and there's an investment we make in these filmmakers as people and as other artists and i think it's so interesting and really kind of brave that Charlotte Wells was able to kind of really f- form this connection with an audience so early on in her career. And Afterson I think, has been one of the most universally praised films this year. So um, to be able to kind of go in with your first film and put it all out there in a way that a lot of these kind of older authors are doing now is, I, I'm, you know, kind of, I think that's very exciting. I'm, I'm really curious as to where she can go next after this one, really. But we'll, we'll discuss that more shortly.
0: Well, yeah, let's get on to the sort of older auteur and his childhood is, uh, as a budding young artist and, and the various struggles at that point. we our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now, on to the movies. After Jewish student Paul Graf and his African-American friend Johnny are caught smoking cannabis, Paul is sent to his older brother's private school, run by Marianne Trump. Despite facing prejudice, Paul's family do their best to try and support him. So that's a very kind of bare bones um, <laughs> summary of what the film is about. But like, how, what is this film really getting under the hood of when it comes to James Gray?
2: So... Uh- it's a big question for a big film. The film is examining this very, very short period in James Gray's childhood. I think it's really only... Over the course of about four or five months when he was 11 and, you know, at that age where you start to A, see your parents as real people and kind of understand their fallibility and their feelings more. And B, at that period where you kind of think you know everything and yet still have these occasional moments where you have you know you're you're kind of so naive to the world and the way the world works and That kind of juxtaposition comes up a lot in this film. This idea of like the things we cling to as children and the things that we hope and dream and the kind of way that reality sets us straight very um, cruelly and very harshly a lot of the time. So it's, you know, James Gray is a kind of a very personal filmmaker. He puts a lot of himself and a lot of his family history into his films, certainly into The Immigrant as well, which was another can (laughs) darling. So, you know, this is... His most kind of nakedly personal story, and that it's directly based on something that happened to him as a child, and that I think is 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 kind of what makes it a difficult film because it's it's difficult to criticise truth in a way but at the same time this film at Cannes I had a lot of conversations around kind of is this a white guilt film is this James Gray saying he's really sad about something that happened to his black friend and kind of how he felt that he couldn't do anything about it or is it a kind of more distanced examination of Jewish American identity and the kind of privileges that, that allows the character of Paul and his family versus the kind of prejudice that they also experience. And really that kind of assimilation is like where so much of the tension in the film comes from and the kind of this idea of what you have to lose in America to become American and why that's easier for some people than others. And it's a film that I've seen now three times and every single time I kind of come away thinking about it for at least a week. I think it's just, there's just so kind of much going on beyond it being the story of James Gray's childhood.
1: Uh, As a Jewish American of guilty white experience, I think it's a really interesting coming of age film in that it frames this person's journey into becoming the person who made the movie against this hugely complex, wider social structure and shows how becoming an artist is just a product of all of these contingencies and contexts and who gets to become an artist and who doesn't. And I think that for a film that draws so many details of its production design, I believe he basically rebuilt his childhood house so many details about his parents are thrown into the performances of Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway. All the stuff with the private school, I assume, is basically true. He really did go to the same school that Donald Trump's sister went to, and she was a very prominent alumna there. So for a film that is so detailed about James Gray's childhood, it's also remarkably analytic in terms of the calculations that his parents make. There's a wonderful, and I'm going to self-plagiarize a little bit from my can review, but I'm very proud that I noticed this. When his parents start to think about sending young Paul to private school, because he's been caught smoking pot in the bathroom with a black boy, among other things, this sort of like, I remember when my parents, who had initially moved to like a part of a country that was sort of suburban and was very white and was thought to have quote unquote good schools, which is a huge aspect of American segregation and this sort of superpowers that. But I remember the beginnings of the rumblings of like, do we need to send this kid to private school? Is he getting the best possible education? Are we setting him up as well as he can to succeed? Are there like, are the other kids bad influences? Is he going to mm-hmm. become like all these other children who we whose parents we don't see any kind of future in him becoming? The one line of dialogue that really struck me was Anne Hathaway keeps talking about class size. We have to send him to a school where there are fewer kids in the class, but she's really talking about the American upper middle class, when she says class size, it's like, we have to get him into a a better class. And it's a simple thing. And it's very literal as James Gray often Mm. is, but it's also, he says exactly what he means, but the meaning is not exhausted in the saying. I think it sort of spirals out into these larger conversations oftentimes because the characters are really out front about a lot of different types of belief about class and assimilation and race in America.
0: I feel very humiliated that I did not notice the double meaning of class size. Um, But (laughs) having uh, literally written the book on New York movies, how did it operate for you in terms of a portrait of New York of Queens?
1: I loved all of the scenes at Flushing Meadows Corona Park. This was sort of an area that was where, with the big globe and the towers where Paul and his grandfather go to launch rockets and have these meaningful conversations. This was a lot of that park and the sort of huge monuments there were built for the 1939 World's Fair. And it's this sort of futuristic idea of prosperity that was informing all of the pavilions at the World Exhibition, this sort of mid-century American dream of a new futuristic way of living with all the modern conveniences that was also created in a lot of ways by Robert Moses, who was responsible for basically carving up a lot of New York's especially impoverished neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. making it a more car centric city and essentially hastening white flight and segregation. So there's a a real beautiful double resonance there. And the other aspect of real estate that I really enjoy is that when they drive through Jamaica estates to look at the nice houses, and there's that beautiful shot of Anne Hathaway looking out of the car window and you see just the reflect, just the reflection, this beautiful sort of, is it a mirror? Is it a barrier that but either way, it's sort of just the shimmering mirage of a dream house on her window. And she's looking out at this beautiful Jamaica estates mock Tudor that could very well be the house that Donald Trump grew up in. She plays it really well too. She plays it sort of like dreamy and sensual and this sort of mother who's very emotionally and physically present in her child's life, just sort of like slipping off into the most, alarming reverie of wealth and class segregation it's a really beautiful and a really troubling moment
0: yeah it it feels like so much of the reagan era does in hindsight to be like patient zero of all the kind of major problems that we're currently facing but on a slightly more pleasant note hannah you went to paris to talk to james (laughs) gray in the latest issue yeah did anything come up in that conversation that
2: reframed armageddon time for you First of all, we'll say that James Gray is kind of maybe one of the best people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to about their work he's so generous as an interviewee and so it really felt like a conversation and sometimes it doesn't with filmmakers sometimes they're very much ironclad about their work and that's that's totally fine but gray was very open to kind of hearing my ideas about the film and also hearing kind of pushback against things in the film which i thought was so rare and so positive you know he's been in this game a long time now he knows how it works and I think especially considering the trouble he's had with shooting In the past, I think he's very willing to speak his mind. I mean, people can read that conversation in the magazine. They can read the full conversation online. By the time this podcast comes out, it will be up. But something that he said that really struck me was about how this film was him kind of really reckoning with what his parents were going through when he was growing up. And the fact that he had this image of them as being a fairly well off family and he just had kind of no concept of the struggles that they were going through and the fact that they did Struggled to put money on the table, uh, put food on the table, and that he could only go to private school because of his grandparents who had retired young and had a bit of money saved. And there was a sense of embarrassment, he said, uh, that his parents couldn't afford to do these things for their children that they wanted to. And their resentment and their frustration You know, did come like we see in the film it kind of comes out in unexpected ways like deciding that the problem is the class sizes or the problem is the only friend that Paul has in this film he's the problem, he's the one that's leading Paul astray when really a lot of the things in the film, the kind of mischief they get up to is Paul instigating it. So I was really heartened to hear that he had such an investment in portraying his parents as real people not with this kind of rose-tinted glasses thing which I think can happen and when we lose someone we love there's this idea of you know wanting to kind of eulogise them and I think that Grey's parents in this film who are so I mean, amazingly kind of recreated by Jeremy Strong and by Anne Hathaway. Um, They don't come off necessarily well, I think. Uh, And I don't think that Grey paints himself in a particularly positive light. I mean, I think Paul is a little shit for a lot of the film. And I kind of love that, I think, in terms of directors creating younger versions of themselves on screen this year and last year. This is definitely one of the more, I think, honest (laughs) uh, portrayals. So, you know, I, I was just so refreshed to see a director who is kind of recreating the past but in a way that felt like it was trying to get at some sort of honesty about things. And, and the honesty we kind of only really get as we get older and start to understand the world the way the world works and what our parents had to sacrifice or why they acted in a certain way. And I think that Grey doesn't make excuses either. It's a very stark film in a lot of ways. And I think an incredibly confronting film. I think, you know, just the kind of moments of like casual racism in his family home are very like shocking to a mod. Well, probably not to a lot of people who've been through that exact experience. It won't be shocking, but I think it's, you know, he, he's not trying to kind of shy away from things and shy away from a, a difficult thing in his past, something that does need to be talked about and does deserve examination. And, and that I think is what I think Enjoyed so much about talking with him. He's such an an honest person, and I think this film comes from a place of wanting to be a kind of profoundly honest artist. And it's so interesting that in the film, rather than drawing things from his kind of own imagination or, or specifically drawing things that the teacher has asked him to draw, Paul, who really wants to be an artist, is kind of recreating images. And he recreates this Kandinsky painting that he's seen, and he draws a rocket after he's had this conversation with. His friend about one how much he wants to be a astronaut, how much Johnny wants to go and work for NASA. You know this idea of like recreating images rather than kind of creating something new, I think is embedded in there as well. And something that just occurred to me when we were talking about Flushing Meadows a minute ago, I think it's really there's just these these subtle touches are what make the film for me. The fact is, you know Johnny is going on about how much he wants to be an astronaut, how much he wants to work for NASA. And in the end, Paul's the one who gets to go to Flushing Meadows and launched the rocket with his grandpa and it's a really like simple thing but I just think there's so much kind of wisdom and so much sadness in this film and I think being a kid is sad <laughs> and not always sad but I think there are so many things that now I look back and I'm like man that was a really like a hard time and I don't think you necessarily realize how amazing it is to make it to adulthood when you're a kid <laughs> the well world, the world is a harsh place especially when you're little and you don't really understand it.
1: Paul is a little shit, which is interesting. But I was just thinking about this as you were talking about it, the relationship that he has with his grandfather, especially with Anthony Hopkins is really lovely, because Paul may have been a little shit, but he did, in fact, grow up (laughs) to be a very significant and thoughtful artist. And he did fulfill whatever promise was present within that 11 or 12 year old boy who just wanted to like, draw rockets and cut class to smoke in the bathroom but i think about this a lot in relation to films where people who have sort of relationships with their parents and older relatives and they're sort of coming of age how did paul's grandfather know that he would that he really would be an artist how did he see that in him when it's so hard for even paul to see that in himself i think it's a really lovely relationship because he was right on on the basis of very little evidence to to sort of adore and see the potential in this in this little shit And I think that that's a really really touching relationship, and it's one that always moves me very much when I see it in film. And it's a much less complicated relationship than the one that his parents have, where they have a very clear idea of what his potential is and are mostly just exasperated every day that he's not fulfilling it and will blame anyone but him. And to a certain extent, they're right. Like it's not Johnny's fault that Johnny is going to have a worse life than him. So they, there is a certain amount of pragmatism and clear headedness in their vision of the world and its limited opportunities and the way in which the people you have to step over to become the person you were actually meant to be, which is a really ambivalent message for the film to have. And I think one that Greg gets at really well.
0: Yeah, it's strange. Of all the kind of films that we mentioned previously, this one definitely leaves on the darkest note. Even with the knowledge of sort of this wonderful directing career that theoretically this young protagonist has ahead of him, there's a darkness in the final act, in the conclusion. It, it, you know, it it sort of doesn't sugarcoat the absolute brutality of this period of time but yeah we should get some scores on before we move on to another coming of age story mark do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
1: i was looking forward to a new james gray film as i always do with perhaps some trepidation about the area that he was going to be treading into, and how discourse he is it would prove, and how the potential for doing something potentially troubling or poorly executed or tone deaf. But I was, but certainly he's a filmmaker who I've seen all of his films and always look forward to. So that would be scores across the board enjoyment. I always it takes me a little bit to settle in with him to get into the rhythms of his dialogue, which is not very naturalistic and which often brings out unexpected more mannered elements in a lot of His actors, but once you attune yourself to that style of filmmaking, it's really rich and pleasurable. And I haven't really stopped thinking about it since. So I would say four, four, four. So twelve.
2: <laughs> Anna, what about you? Um, I think it's a four, four, five for me. I think, like I said, you know, I've I've seen this film multiple times now, and every time I kind of come away with a, a lot of questions even more answers and even over this course of our conversation there's so many more things that I'm thinking about now and I'm like oh man I feel like I could write you know another review of this film and touch on completely different things which in fact I believe Richard Brody did I think he wrote two reviews of this film which I very much recommend reading because I think they're really beautiful and very analytical about this film in a way that I could never hope to be but 445 it's definitely going to be on my top 10 of the year I think it's just such a sad and beautiful film and as someone you had a very very influential grandparent who really nurtured their artistic talent and really believed in them it it feels very close to my heart as well well for me
0: probably a four three four but in in a way the three isn't necessarily down to the film itself it's more that I just had a low level of anxiety throughout when we're sort of handling anti-black racism and and and, um anti-semitism of yeah that 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 this was just kind of going to go into maybe like a green book level of white saviorism or or, or something more insidious the film doesn't do that but i just think the viewing experience was very kind of peppered by me having kind of sharp intakes of breath being like the love of god what are they going to do with this fred trump character i don't know that i can handle this but yeah for in retrospect i think i think it was wonderful and uh yeah definitely a top tier roma next up after (laughs) sun You're listening to Truth in Movies. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe.
3: From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover
0: on the platform. After being so devastated by Aftersun, I wanted to switch gears into something hilarious and audacious, and the African Desperate from Martin Sims proved just the ticket. It's a piercing art world satire with a trippy, achingly cool aesthetic, and I couldn't recommend it enough.
3: I'm currently catching up with Lars von Trier's cult show, The Kingdom, from the early 90s. Mubi going into miniseries is huge, and The Kingdom Exodus is a must-watch event. If you've not seen the original series before, you can also stream newly restored versions of both seasons now on Mubi. The new series begins on November 27th, with new episodes premiering weekly all through to Christmas.
0: With Movie, each and every film is hand selected by their dedicated team of curators. You can choose from an eclectic mix of timeless classics, award winning masterpieces, and festival fresh gems.
3: It's like having your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere.
0: Try Movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash LW Lies. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LW Lies for a whole month of great cinema for free aftersun takes place at a resort in turkey 11 year old sophie treasures the time she spends with her loving and idealistic father 20 years later sophie reminisces about their last holiday together as she tries to come to terms with the man she didn't always know before we get into the film itself here's a conversation i had with aftersun stars paul mescal and frankie Corio. Thank you so much for this wonderful film. Uh, you must be delighted that like the reception has been so incredibly intense. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it. great. I'm loving
3: it. It's great that we're destroying people's
0: feelings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's like so much room in the film for kind of interpretation. You know what exactly the backstory is. What's going to happen next? Did you come to it with like quite a firm idea of like what it was?
3: I, I, I don't think we were expecting this kind of like unanimous response to, A, the film being moving, but also kind of critically people seem to really be enjoying the film. So, um, yeah, it's a a very nice place to be pre-release.
0: Yeah. And um, when it comes to um, the story, I know that Charlotte's talked about how it's, like, very, very personal to her. Do you then, like, feel a real additional pressure to kind of, like, honour her experiences?
3: I I think... Charlie was always very keen to, like, it, it, it's obvious when you read it first that it is, like, coming from a personal place, but that these are characters that ultimately you have to play you have to, like, act. So it's, I don't know, I, I felt like we played the characters for the characters that they are on the page, and I think we loved both Callum and Sophie. And yes. And Charlie was just so good at guiding us through that process. I think she's, like, kind of one in a million.
0: So many of your scenes, like, you know, obviously the dialogue is beautiful, but there's a lot going on that isn't being spoken. Does that provide a bit of a challenge when you're kind of going to the script, actually figuring out what this is really about?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's the what is public and what is private. And a lot of the film, I would say like 90% of the film is the public relationship between Callum and Sophie. And then there's you 10% of film, which is behind closed doors and I think that's where the the kind of sadness of the film lies but what do you think? Yeah I can't even remember what we were saying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well I mean it's particularly difficult for you because you're kind of playing a proxy of the director and like even the two of you look really similar. (laughs) Yeah Yeah.
3: well you cut your hair like Charlie after the film. Yeah
4: cut my hair like Charlie Close.
3: it's a cool haircut. Yeah exactly.
4: Obviously. But then she goes so mad that she cut her own hair and now now it's different.
0: You've got these really, like, fun moments of joy of, like, dancing and stuff like that. Like, Um, it's not all kind of doom and gloom. Yeah,
4: not the depressing stuff, but the good good stuff I can relate to because my parents are very good to me and they're very nice. (laughs) But, yeah, the depressing stuff I can't relate to. No. But the nice stuff,
0: I can I'm glad to hear that because you always you do. I think particularly when you see like a wonderful young person like yourself doing a performance like this, you just do have a little moment of like, oh, I really hope they're like having a lot of support behind the scenes and they're not kind of you know being like overstretched or coming away upset at the end of the day. But you you felt that on the set.
4: I felt great on the set. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from on my birthday when Charlie tried to make me cry on my birthday for a scene. I hated that. <laughs>
3: I'm going to do It's like.
4: Everyone had to help, and then I ended up not doing it.
3: <laughs> which I think is like. I, I don't so like,
4: professional. I
3: just, no, you did great. It's like a hard thing to ask anybody to do it.
4: Especially on their 11th birthday.
3: Especially <laughs> on their 11th birthday. And yeah. I, Charlie's so good at kind of. Being, I don't know. And, and also director. protecting. Being a great director, and also knowing you and protecting you within that.
0: Did you feel a pressure given this as your first role to kind of like set the tone for the rest of the career? Like, this is the boundaries you should set. This is kind of how you should protect yourself and behave and that sort of thing.
3: Well, I think if Charlie hadn't been the way that she was, mm-hmm. I definitely would have felt more of a responsibility. But much of it was about if Frankie had any questions or mm-hmm. anything. But all of that kind of went... I thought there would be way more of that. Mm-hmm. And then it was just getting to spend time with somebody that I really enjoyed spending time with. It kind of became not like a uh, father-daughter relationship in the film. Like the, the experience to me was like hanging out with my friend, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that benefited the film a lot. I
0: yeah. mean, imagine in this, um, you, know, you don't have any kids yet, but you yeah. would have had been very, very young. And I that is often the dynamic that happens in those situations where yeah. people do become more like friends than sort of yeah. parent-father.
3: Totally, I think that that was that that was the case, and it, that was the, that was my saving grace. That it was in the script that they are mistaken for brother and sister because I think it would have been too young otherwise to have gotten the part. So I was uh, when I read that I was like, Yay, yeah, yeah, I've been in. I can play this part. So yeah,
0: this film doesn't really work without us kind of really believing in that central bond. Like, was there something that kind of maybe initially clicked when the two of you met?
3: What do you think? It just kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know if it was, like, easy, like, it just felt easy. It mm-hmm. is, yes. like, I think we also got to the point where... We
4: just played and then best friends.
3: We, like, clicked and also it was, like, we could, t- I could talk to her and we could talk to each other. Like, mm-hmm. when there was pressurized moment on set, but we could, like, we have to go get this done now. Like, this has to happen. And Frankie was incredibly astute in terms of for it to be, like, her her first film, and I don't want to be speaking on her behalf, but to know that, like, to very quickly pick up on the rhythms of, like, a working day, Mm -hmm. and know, like, oh, we can't really, like, mess around here, it's got to be, we've got to get it, and it's important, like, I think you were always aware of, like, the importance of making the film, and I think you cared about making the film, which I think is the big relief when you're working with a kid, that it's not just, like, a a holiday, you know? Mm -hmm. Of course, it's that as well, it's supposed to be that, but that it's, like, the three of us being... Charlie Frankie and myself were like very much in the like tunnel vision of making something that we were proud of.
0: It does feel very natural like mm-hmm. on the screen like was it very tightly scripted or did you have room to kind of play around a bit?
3: It was pretty tightly scripted yeah. but there was like there was room for like whatever idiosyncrasies that Frankie and myself would naturally like gravitate towards or mm-hmm. come up with there in there but the script was too was too good to kind of deviate too far from. I think.
0: And you had Barry Jenkins as well, um, yeah. kind of in the production role. Like, was that kind of a reference at all? Because I was thinking of Moonlight when I was watching it. That sort of feeling of memory.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely. I, I would put them in the same category mm-hmm. of film, and yeah, it was definitely a reference for me watching it. Although I don't think there's any kind of real father figures like that was more like, come on, come on, to me, was that mm-hmm. was that reference. But I, I think... Am I right in saying that? Oh, no, there's the Marshall, that character, yeah, of course. In the first act. Yeah, 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 in the first act. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool that he's associating, getting to meet him at ride was pretty cool.
0: Like, post all of this, you've also got to do this, like, big long press tour and all these festivals and stuff. Have you enjoyed, like, that side of things, or are you more kind of...
4: I have enjoyed most of it, apart from the Q&A's, where I have to sit on the stage and talk. I don't like that. Yeah.
3: That's hard. I think that I high. don't like that either.
4: I, I like press, because it's fun. Yeah. It's only one person, and then, most of the time, me and Paul, or me and Charlie. Or sometimes just me, but I don't mind the press. I just hate
0: the Q&A's.
3: Yeah, I mean, as someone who
0: does them, I'll say...
3: <laughs> <laughs> They're hard things. They're, like, so... There's, like, a live aspect but also you're trying to articulate in like 15-20 minutes why the film and the process was important to you it's like a whistle stop tour of yeah yeah
0: but i mean it's it's with a film like this i think so much of it is about like just this like unadulterated like really really positive word of mouth and like people totally have such a strong connection to it i'm not Sure, you guys get a lot of not a comment, not a not a question, but a comment. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is my
3: life. <laughs> Answer the question. Yeah it's, yeah, it's hard.
0: I think I'm about the same age as Charlotte, and I went on kind of similar Mediterranean kind of all-inclusive holidays with my nan and Stafford around the same time. So, like a lot of the period details make those sense to me. But were any of them like really confusing to you because they were very no accurate.
3: the 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 ones that I like. We went to Crete on a summer holiday. We couldn't really afford to go away. So we went, we did a lot of like holidays in Ireland. But then there's a couple of like the, the buffet breakfasts in mm-hmm. the morning, the pool, the... Is it, like it's all very... I feel like it's if, if I went on one of those now, it would probably look the same. Yeah. Just without, you'd be filming on an iPhone and not a DV camera. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, the place that we were in Turkey looks and feels the exact same as like the holidays that I went on when I was...
0: But but that moment where you get that kind of braided thing with a rope around that, I was just like, yes, I remember being eleven and thinking that was the coolest thing in the absolute world. Is it not? It is. is. No, I want to go get. I mean, I don't even know if somebody maybe even does them now. That would be amazing. I bet you that will come back
3: in vogue. (laughs) The like little thing.
0: Yeah.
4: Every everyone will be asking me, where I got my inspiration from. Yeah.
0: But now there's been so many like different interpretations of exactly what the ending is, exactly what happened before this holiday. Like, have have you got a really firm sense for yourself, or are you kind of very open to whatever you take from it?
3: I do have a like. I think it it was. It, but it also doesn't matter what I Mm -hmm. think. I think it's obviously in the making of it. It's important, but I like will just never say what I think it is because I think that's the joy of. The film you know mm-hmm. I think it's important that the f- feeling that people have I, I find it frustrating sometimes when people look like at Q&A's after when they're like but I need to know what happens and then it removes you as the audience from like actually experiencing it doesn't matter mm-hmm. it actually doesn't if you're like connected to the film it's the feeling of it rather than the kind of having this kind of representation or having this map out in front of you so that you can understand it I think is about emotionally connecting to it rather than knowing exactly what happened.
0: Hmm. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. So Mark how does Charlotte Wells approach in returning to her childhood differ from that of Gray's?
1: Well it's she's often described this film as emotionally autobiographical rather than strictly autobiographical. Well, in Armageddon time, there are inklings of Paul's artistic talent or artistic interests, and he is copying great drawings because James Gray has always copied the masters. And it's not necessarily the case in After Sun that Sophie is going to grow up to be an artist, but what we see instead is but we know that at the time she was making these home movies that she made with the camcorder on vacation with her dad. So there's already there's this immediate doubling of perspective that happens in the movie that Greg gets at quite differently just with the sort of exactitude and depth and structure of this dramaturgy that Wells gets at with sort of these multiple present tenses that are layered on top of each other, you're always aware because she introduces the camcorder footage very early on that this is a memory, but it's both immediately in the moment and that some remove in a way that I think is really interesting it, it's not clear yeah it's not clear that Sophie becomes a filmmaker, even though it's obvious that she is in Charlotte Wells just because of the sort of intimacy of the scenario, as in the fablemans the, these films become sort of evidence of the past, just like in the fableman's. Young Steven Spielberg is looking back over his home movies like looking that he just took on a camping trip like looking for clues about what happened to his parents and it's interesting because I was going to festivals this year where I saw After Sun I kept seeing movies by women filmmakers who were using home movies in their autobiographical films for The Slayer. So I saw Super 8 Years where Annie Arnault looks back at her old Super 8 home movies from the 70s and the last decade of her marriage. I looked at, I saw All the Beauty and the Bloodshed where Nan Golden's entire artistic project is making home movies as a sort of immediate present tense memorial to her friends. In Saint Omer, Alice Diop mocks up home videos that look eerily like the real home movies of hers that we see in her documentary We, that speak to ghosts of memories uh, circling around the filmmaker standing in it. And even Eternal Daughter by Joanna Hogg is a film about an artist grappling with the distance between her and a parent. And so I also think about The Souvenir in relation to Sun. These are all women who were sort of seizing control of their own stories. But there's also this sense, as you're watching these old videos and all these old films, that the moments of their life were authored by someone else, even if that someone else is you. Mm-hmm. Immediately, there's a distance just in like the format, how different camcorders from the 90s and after some look from a film shot in this decade so you have this visual evidence of things remembered misremembered unremembered and the past becomes simultaneously really distant and really imminent and you see both the things that Sophie knew as a child and the things that Sophie knows as an adult and the things that they, that she doesn't know as a child and an adult sort of layered on top of each other
0: i think that's one of the things i found most interesting about it is that kind of something can be fixed in amber like you can't change the events of the past but you had, can have like this continually evolving relationship to your own memory and that comes across so beautifully but hannah you've, you've got a reasonably faint memory of seeing this you saw this at Cannes when everybody was hysterically weeping um, outside the cinema from what i hear
2: yeah, no, I've seen it again since. Um, yeah, no, I, I wasn't so keen on it uh, back in Cannes. I think it was just, you know, sometimes when you're at a film festival and you're seeing this many films in a day, you can just become a bit sort of um, almost like being snowblind. You just like, you just can't really see what you're looking at properly. Um, but I do remember, yeah, everyone had such an emotional reaction to it. And then I just kind of came out and was surrounded by people just like hugging and crying and wanting to call their parents. And I was just like cool Uh, (laughs) which makes me sound heartless i guess a lot of the people i've spoken to who really really love this film love it because they have that kind of deep connection to a parent and particularly dads and i never had that so i didn't really form the same kind of personal connection to this film and certainly not in the way i did with armageddon time but you know that doesn't prevent me from liking or disliking a film um i just think it is interesting and worth noting that i think if you don't have that experience maybe it can seem a little alien but I mean I, I definitely re-watching it I got a sense for kind of what a remarkable film this is for a first feature I mean Charlotte Wells has made shorts before but it just comes so fully formed and so sure of itself as a film it's very clear to me that she you know she knew what she wanted to do and she did it and that i think is incredibly exciting it's really exciting to get a a new filmmaking voice in the uk at a time when danny boyle is saying that the the uk doesn't have good filmmakers uh have one kind of like straight out the gate come out with something like this and i was also very impressed by um the casting i think casting is such a um, when you see great casting, you don't always notice it. It's a very like unsung category of film craft. And Paul Mescal, I think, would have probably shot this just after or just before he shot Normal People, but certainly before Normal People came out. So, you know, he was kind of an unknown quantity at this point. And I was very impressed by him. I think he is such a kind of warm presence in the film but at the same time has this this (laughs) this melancholy that we catch in the kind of glimpses and it feels shocking as a viewer because you're so used to seeing him with you know being kind of like fun dad like joking around and then you know you just have these private moments which feel devastating and we never really know why we don't we never kind of get to the heart of like what's going on in his head which could be frustrating I I quite like how ambiguous the film is about what happened between him and Sophie and you know the kind of fractures in their relationship and particularly what's going on in his personal life but yeah I think it's such an impressive film and such a kind of gives you such an amazing sense of place as well you know I, I it really does feel like it's the 90s and you're on a shit package or a bit shit package holiday in turkey especially like all the kind of period details i think it's such a lovingly made film and i think that speaks to a real kind of like attention to detail that charlotte must have especially with kind of assembling a team and getting people that kind of know this stuff inside and out
1: i was really taken as as you were with how polished it is for a first film. I interviewed her earlier this fall. So I looked at a couple of her shorts, which are on Vimeo. Uh, In particular, I think the first movie she ever directed is an 11 minute student film that she made uh, while doing an MFA program at NYU that sort of convinced her that she wanted to be a filmmaker rather than a producer. Tuesday, which is about Scottish teenage girl visiting her dad's bachelor flat after school. And she's sort of moping around, but also tidying up a little bit taking care of the place and trying to feel close to him. And it gradually, you gradually figure out that her dad is dead and this is a mourning ritual. So that was Wells sort of taking a very sort of natural first film material, which is her grief over the death of her father, who did die. Yeah, I'm not sure when, I'm not sure how old she was when her father died, but that's what she was responding to. And with After sun, this is sort of a second first film. It's like a second attempt at doing maybe similar relationships and similar material, but transformed in in a more articulated way. There's a number of reasons why I think it's so polished that are maybe quite practical, which is she's in her mid thirties. So she came to filmmaking relatively late in life compared to someone like James Gray, who directed his first film when he was two years out of undergrad. Charlotte Wells is a Scottish filmmaker who went to film school at NYU. So she's very plugged into both American and British development funds and grants. Like this movie was supported by both the Sundance Institute and the British Film Institute. So there was twice as much money. (laughs) And her producer is Adela Romansky, who has a Best Picture Oscar for Moonlight. So this is a very experienced producer, which is why a first time director was allowed and supported in doing a period movie in a foreign country with a mostly Turkish crew. That's how she was able to scout these foreign locations and build these 90s arcades and manage this unfamiliar crew is that like these are resources that are not available to every first time feature filmmaker and you see all of that on screen in just the confidence of the film language it seems like a very conventional film but there's this beautiful balance to me of this very like potentially over the top sentimentality with big emotional needle drops but balanced with this very tactile elliptical hazy style where you're being in a moment that's so textured that the present tense is every bit as real as whatever flow of a personal narrative is happening underneath it. And I think that that's really really lovely and and i just also respond as i did in armageddon time to the effort to see your parents clearly which i think is a huge theme in both films and i mean you make sense of the i guess you make sense of the world first by making sense of your parents and then you step outward and that's sort of the process that we're seeing in both films
0: well it's a process i'm certainly going through in therapy as well we should get some scores on this hannah do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
2: I would say, oh, it's it's you know, it's really hard to convey this because obviously I had the experience of seeing it once and not thinking very much, and then seeing it again and and liking it a lot more. Maybe a four, three, four, but that I'm I'm trying to capture both views in that. Um, it's definitely one that at Sundance was a very buzzy title. I'd you know heard. A lot of people that saw it at the first screening say like, oh, it's one you've got to to watch. And I do feel like I've been on a bit of a journey with this film and and, kind of come around to it. But I think it's also proof that sometimes you do need to give films another look in order to kind of like get the most out of them. And I will say like the final scene, there's like an amazing rave scene in this film, which reminds me a lot of uh, Beau Travai. And when I spoke to Charlotte Wells, the kind of references she was pulling of like the filmmakers she loves were like so up my alley like she was like yeah Lynn Ramsey Morven Caller and you know she she um is clearly a filmmaker who loves film and I'm always so glad when we get someone who is clearly watching films and clearly like engaging with cinema so yeah I'm, I'm very excited to see where wherever she goes next and Frankie Corio as well I think she's one one to watch such a little superstar in this film. Uh, Mark what about you Frankie Corio
0: more than just a little shit I mean
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's oh
1: she was one. Uh, I saw this movie at Cannes, which is not a brag. It's just to say that she was there. I mean, I know that you're asking me for my scores, but I think mm-hmm. she's. I think I think she's great because she's a tween girl who's playing on films. A girl who can be quite introspective and mm-hmm. unsure of herself as she navigates the world. And just to see her off screen with so much confidence and sense of like pride and achievement and authorship of her performance in this movie is really great. I am going to arguably bragged that this is a four for anticipation, because I knew going to Cannes that this would be an interesting title that would get a lot of attention just on the basis of Wells's pedigree. She was one of Filmmaker Magazine's 25 New Faces of Independent Film on the basis of her student shorts. The film is edited by her film school friend, Blair McClendon, who is a really interesting critic who cut the Kitty Green's The Assistant. It had as a young actor. So it had, it, it was clear that this was going to be a movie that I should at least see. And I enjoyed it very much, probably a four as well. And it is continuing to sit well at a high four. It tells sort of a relatable small scale story. She has said she's pulled a lot from Morvern Cowler, both in the, the rave scene and in the depiction of British people on holiday in the 1990s and early 2000s. And she's told me she's been watching like a lot of Taiwanese new wave stuff. That she's been discovering for the first time that's also informing a lot of her filmmaking style so i think she is a voice and it will be interesting to see that voice expand outwards into the world in her hopefully long and fruitful feature film career for us across the board
0: yeah and i think again i'm four three four is boring as as that might be because i watching it i did have a sense of especially having seen how strongly loads of people reacted to it of like oh is that it and i think i even texted hannah the moment it was done and said was that it in retrospect it's kind of sat with me for a while i I found it quite haunting and a much more impressive piece of work i mean particularly as a first film but even if it it was a seventh film i think it it's really something quite special but we shall be returning back to james gray next for film club Little Odessa sees hitman Joshua return to Brighton Beach for a contract killing for the Russian Mafia. His abusive father banned him from returning, but he takes up residence in a hotel and soon everyone knows he has returned. He goes home to visit his dying mother, prepares for an assassination and is drawn back into the criminal community he left behind. So Hannah, got to assume you've seen Little Odessa before? Was this one of your suggestions for Film Club? I can't remember.
2: Um, it was my suggestion, but no, I hadn't actually seen it before. Sometimes I just like to suggest a film that I've been meaning to watch for Film Club so I can tick it off and feel like I've done work. I, I, I thought it would be a good one, not only because of the James Gray, obviously, you know, debut film thing, but I'll let you in on the secret, guys. I thought this was going to be a lot more autobiographical than it actually was. <laughs> I, I, I well, with a death that count
0: term. that high, I would be quite to this would be very infamous if this had happened to James Gray.
2: Yeah, I don't believe that James Gray was involved in the Russian mafia. It's also a place that I happened to visit this summer with Mark. In fact, very briefly, I didn't see very much of Little Odessa, but um, I did have some delicious Eastern European snacks and enjoyed Brighton Beach a great deal. You know, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, no, well, let's do Little Odessa. And I watched it with my mom last night and um, she just kept like remarking on how young Tim Roth was and and no I mean she's completely correct yeah he's very young in this film also kind of not trying an accent he's just just like very half-heartedly doing something I guess which isn't really American isn't really a kind of amalgamation of American Russian or I mean they, they talk in Yiddish actually a lot of the film because the characters are Jewish you know it was it was an experience watching anything with my mother who does not watch movies is an experience but yeah man ble- bleak film <laughs> very very bleak film kind of unrelentingly bleak a gangster movie about this returning prodigal son who returns to his home for a hit in Brighton Beach and I mean I, I don't know if tries to make amends is, is the right word really. He's not really trying to make amends with his family but kind of becomes embroiled with them again. His abusive father and his dying mother and his poor little teenage brother who is just kind of completely lost in the world and it's just a kind of a series of progressively more sad scenes until it all comes to this like incredibly sad like ending that I think as soon as that scene begins you're like this is this is gonna end incredibly badly for everyone involved yeah it delivers on that promise
1: (laughs) i want to flag before i respond to anything that you just said i want to flag for any american uh listeners who may be tuned in to this podcast that little odessa is currently available to watch for free with ads on tubi the people's platform (laughs) which is how i viewed it last night so incredibly obtrusive and jarring Cuts away to ads for some app with John Cena advertising for it and various prescription medications (laughs) and probably the ideal way to watch this film. It's interesting that you say that this doesn't seem autobiographical because obviously it's not, but at the same time, it really sort of is. Like the film opens with Tim Roth, who's this hitman doing, just walking up to a guy on a park bench and shooting him. Those are like the first three shots of the film before the credits. And it's clear that it's just in there so that you know right away that you're watching a genre film. Because that's not where James Gray's heart is. It was how he was able to get a film financed and made in the early 90s as a 24-year-old fresh out of USC film school. And Gray in his entire career has really been doing sort of a two-step with genre filmmaking. He finds the crime drama, as in The Yards, as in We Own the Night... As here useful for him in so much as it's a way to explore the question of what we owe to our families and what our families owe to us. But obviously, this film is much more like Two Lovers, which is shot in the exact same area around Brighton Beach. All of the beautiful brick pre war walk ups, which by the legendary Russian restaurant and nightclub Tatyana, known for its floor show and for having burned down twice under very suspicious circumstances, Two Lovers is also shot right around there and similarly has a sense of this person being sort of overwhelmed and smothered by this uh, Russian Jewish family. Similar looking apartments on the inside, too. I was reading about the making of this film just before I got on this podcast. The apartment in Little Odessa, which has this awful chipped pink wallpaper and heavy old wooden furniture, and as just like a desperate grab for class and intellectual status, there's like a framed Paul Klee reproduction right by the door when you come in. This was a real 77-year-old man's apartment who had lived there for 55 years. They did redress it, but that is his wallpaper, and you can really tell. Yep,
0: just another it- layer of sadness now, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: And actually, like Armageddon Time, this film was inspired by the death of a parent. James Gray's mother died of a brain tumor when he was still in his teens, when he was a freshman in college, I believe. And so the sickness of his mo- of, um, Tim Roth and Eddie Furlong's mother in this movie is very responsive to that. And also the relationship that Tim Roth has with his parents is very overwhelming and oedipal, as it is in a lot of James Gray movies. This is a movie where Vanessa Redgrave gets out of bed once. Uh, she plays a sick, dying ailing mother and she is lying in bed and just looking sick no makeup looking miserable but she's still this incredibly powerful like earthy sensual commanding presence and she tells like eddie furlong like you're so beautiful and there's these very intimate scenes and there's always really powerful mothers in james gray isabella Rossellini in two lovers ellen burston in the yards anne hathaway in armageddon time
0: there was not one in Ad Astra.
1: <laughs> well no Unless but you can was...
0: say neptune the the, the <laughs> grandmother of us all or something
1: as an aside one of my favorite line readings of the last several years is the way tommy lee jones says neptune in that movie so there isn't a mom <laughs> and dad astra but there is a dad and as an armageddon time he uh meets his sons with a belt in a scene that where they blocked it as he would take off the belt in preparation to hit tim roth and then tim roth would hit him and they blocked it and apparently maximilian shell went off script shooting that scene hit tim roth with the belt which he was not expecting uh which was apparently james gray's idea but he was like don't you can't ever tell tim that this is all in the new yorker article about the making of the film very interesting stuff just 24 year old horseshit but um just a little detail But the more of james gray you see the more autobiographical it actually kind of seems because of this encompassing powerful family and the hold that it exerts psychologically over these characters
0: and hannah before we wrap up watching this and now caring about armageddon time as much as you do do you see that this is sort of a a filmmaker who's matured maybe
2: yeah, I mean definitely. Um I think that it's really interesting reading contemporary reviews of this film. A uh, little a also take a bit of a pasting. Roger Ebert said it was a film of connected scenes rather than actual narrative, which I thought was a bit harsh. Uh, but I do think it's fascinating how James Gray's whole career has basically been trying to sneak in these very personal narratives into genres where you wouldn't necessarily expect them like these series of crime films he he made like Ad Astra like The Lost City of uh, Z or Z depending where you are in the world and he's a real hustler as James Gray you know I'm so glad that he seems to kind of be on an uptick at the moment and be making more films because I think there was like six years between Little Odessa and the yards, and there's even the ad Astra was in production for a very, very long time, and he still didn't get final cut on it, but that's a different issue for a different podcast. I'm just so grateful we have a filmmaker who's kind of doggedly obsessed with his own vision (laughs) as uh, James Gray seems to be and his films often leave me feeling incredibly depressed like Ad Astra very much some vibes The Yards very depressing film The Immigrant very depressing film but uh, I kind of you know I love that I need that kind of nourishment and when you meet him he's such a lovely soft-spoken man who by his own admission has a very bad temper he said that to me when he came in (laughs) I was just like great way to start an interview, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think this is more than kind of a curio, and if you like me grew up watching american history x way too young and having a huge crush on edward furlong great edward furlong actually in this film as well which we've not even not even touched on him and tim roth i think have this kind of very um watchable chemistry together on screen and there's just a there's a lovely moment where joshua's ex-girlfriend is kind of asking Ruben like oh where's your big brother and he turns to her and he's like do you like movies <laughs> like being really kind of like he's like a you know 16 year old and he's been really like shady about it like to organize this kind of meeting between them all and uh yeah i, I i'm i very glad i kind of finally got around to watching this one and it made me really want to go back to brighton beach as well what a kind of fascinating part of new york that i feel like we don't really get to see that often in like the the canon i feel like we stick to manhattan and brooklyn and sometimes queens but this is an area of new york that is really underrated in, in my f- narrow view of the of the city. <laughs>
1: It's changed a lot since this film was made. A lot of the Russian-speaking Jewish immigration to Brighton Beach was from Eastern Europe and in the post-war years, like the family in this movie, from the Soviet Union, because I think it was easier for Jews to emigrate a lot of the time. And right as this film was being made, the Soviet Union was breaking up. So there started to be a lot of emigration from Russian-speaking non-Jews from the former Soviet republics, especially like the Caucasus. So now there's tons of like great Georgian and Azeri restaurants and food and culture in South Brooklyn and a sort of a very different vibe in some ways from in the movie.
0: So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Timothy and Luca reunite for a cannibal road trip in Bones and All, and it's also the much-anticipated subject of the latest issue of Little White Lies, Glass Onion. And then, ahead of the latest series of Last One Priz Kingdom Exodus* coming to movie, we'll be watching the streamer's restoration of the first season, 1994's The Kingdom. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth the Movies is hosted by me, Leila Matip, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Mark Ash. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.